This is an Equity Mates Media podcast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everyone. It is Bryce here. Just dropping in before the episode kicks off. If you listen regularly to us or follow us on social media, then you would have heard us talking about our book, Get Started Investing. Incredibly exciting times for us, Ren. That's right, Bryce. You know, we've been doing this show for four and a half years. We've spoken to over 150 experts. We've heard so many stories from people in the Equity Mates community. And what we've tried to do with this book is summarize that all, condense as many lessons and learnings as possible to really make uh, this book a resource for anyone at any stage of their investing journey. And, you know, included in it is a bunch of lessons that we wish we knew when we were getting started investing. So hopefully you can learn from our mistakes and um, this book can help you avoid some of the investing pitfalls that Bryce and I have fallen well and truly headfirst into. That's right. So Equitymates has been free for a long time now and anything in the Equitymates media network is is free. And if you have always wanted to be able to say thanks for what we're doing, then this is a great opportunity for you to do so by pre-ordering a copy of the book. The link is available in show notes to Booktopia. And we would very much appreciate if you were able to buy this for yourself, your friends, your family, anyone that you know wants to get started on their investing journey. So very exciting for us, Ren, but uh, let's get stuck into the show. I will say this about investing. Everything you do What I learned at 20 is Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. We are continuing our CEO series where we speak to some of the best CEOs and founders from Australia and New Zealand, around the world. And for a while, uh, you know, we've been fascinated with some of the great companies coming out of New Zealand yes. uh, that are listed over here in Australia. And we're going to continue that today with a New Zealand-based CEO with an ASX-listed company. Correct. It is our pleasure to welcome Grant Straker to Equitymates. Grant, welcome. Uh, hi, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. So Grant is the co-founder and CEO of Straker Translations, an ASX-listed language translation service. Since co-founding Straker with his wife, Marin, in 1999, the company has grown to $30 million in revenue and a $130 million market cap. Prior to Straker Translations, Grant was a paratrooper in the British Army. So we're going to be spending the next uh, little while going through some of the company basics, um, growth and competition, then closing out with a discussion around leadership and people and culture as always. So, Ren, let's kick it off. Yeah, so Grant, to start these interviews, we always like to hear the CEO or the founder uh, describe their own company in their own words. So, to kick us off today, uh, what is Straker Translations? So, we are an AI-driven, productivity-enhancing platform in the $50 billion-plus language services industry. We offer language services through our platform uh, and a global services network to commercialize our innovation and 
fundamentally in this industry, AI is going to have an impact that's going to make humans more productive. Uh, and we've built a platform that commercializes that and encapsulates a huge amount of unique technology to uh, give us an advantage. Now, Grant, you're a Kiwi, but before founding Straker, you were a paratrooper in the British Army. So how did uh, all that happen? And then what led you to actually founding Straker? Yeah, so I went to the UK as a, as a teenager with my family. Uh, my dad got a job over there and I um, uh, went there late 70s, early 80s. And uh, along with a couple more brothers, we joined the uh, the army. Both my parents were actually previously in the air force. Strange enough, so <laughs> we all joined the army. And look, it was it was it was a fantastic adventure. I I, I feel sorry for a lot of the people in their twenties now who get locked into desks and sitting in front of computers coding. Um, when you know, I got to do incredibly exciting stuff from you know traveling the world when 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 it was hard to travel the world you know as a young person i know now there's cheap flights everywhere but it was it was really difficult so you, you got to do all these exciting things i did some crazy stuff i, I sort of part of a, a few of us were the first people to ever cycle across continental usa and mountain bikes uh for example i was sort of at the berlin wall when the wall came down um so i got to, to, to have some really fantastic experiences um and then when I came back to New Zealand, I left the army and, and uh, came back in the 90s. I, I thought uh, I'd better get serious and, and figure out what I was going to do. So I went to study engineering. And that engineering sort of took me into coding. I was working for a gas gas company. I had to solve some problems with uh, just, just gas flows and write a program that could figure stuff out. And I found out that Excel wouldn't do it. And I so I looked underneath the hood and, and found VB Basic and, and taught myself that and then started to write some programs that everybody wanted to use in this company. And the IT guys asked me if I could enhance these and I just thought it was a bit strange that they were the IT guys and I just taught myself. So uh, I thought I'd better go on a course. So I went on a course to learn uh, to do this properly. And then the company asked me if I would um, come and consult for them. <laughs> so I gave up my job. And um, started this, and 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 then this is sort of late nineties. And I actually met my wife at the at sort of around about that time in a cross dressing bar of all places. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, it, it was someone else's thirtieth birthday, um, and uh, yeah. And, and it was only a couple of months after that that I'd got this contracting gig and then people wanted me to do different things and then she could see what was going on and, and we'd only known a couple each other a couple of months and so we um, she just sort of started the company then. So, so that's sort of how it started. And so the company was founded in 1999 uh, and became a translation service uh, company in 2010. So I guess the, the question is what, what happened in those 11 years? Yeah, look, so we started off sort of doing, initially doing, you know, consulting as the dot-net boom sort of took off and then built a product. Uh, we, we had an option with uh, Tourism New Zealand to build a platform for them to manage all their multilingual content when, before the days of WordPress and commercial content management systems. So we built this platform. We then turned that into a, a saleable licensed products so again if you if you look at what you had to do back then it was a different world you had to build a product that was installed in servers inside of buildings around the world or you know inside of uh, customers premises and and support all these different platforms you couldn't just deploy it on the web and push a button and and it's in the cloud it was really quite hard um 
So, so we built this platform and, and we sold it around the world and we had sort of more of a lifestyle company, but it was also for my wife and I, we'd never run a company. So it was like an apprenticeship, a 10 year apprenticeship on, on, on how to run a company, living off your cash flows and, um, you know, your, your customers were, were, were your fun funders. <laughs> um, and I think that that's actually stood us in really good stead as we've gone on to be a much bigger company. Yeah, well, speaking of size, I'm just having a look at your product set and there's plenty going on. So for those that may not have heard of Straker before, are you able to explain, uh, I guess, broadly what you do offer and what problem you're solving? And do you translate podcasts? <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, no, we definitely translate podcasts. Yeah, we do. So, so what, we're, what we're fundamentally doing is, 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 is we're helping the world to communicate. So, so people have got to... The, the, the translation language services industry is enormous, and um, it, it's because cross-border trade, people need to translate legal documents if they're doing a contract. They need the marketing. If you're if you're a manufacturer of equipment, you need all the marketing stuff put into different languages. There's um, you know cross-border deals going on where there's due diligence and and, and all those sorts of things happening. Um, and now there's media. There's all these TV programs, etc., Netflix and the likes that all need. Subtitles, so or voiceovers. So it, it's it's it, w- what we have done is figured out how to automate the process flows. So again, so it's not manual; it's not getting shipped around in spreadsheets, etc. There's a lot of integration with APIs and connectors that streamline the the flow of content. And then what we're doing on top of that is we've got this ability where we've been able to map the commercial gains that you get or the productivity gains that you get in um, through AI and through technology to a commercial outcome for us and for our customers. Uh, and, that, and that basically means speeding up the humans but producing just as accurate translations. Uh, so, you know, the customers win, it takes less time. Everybody now wants to do things really quickly. Uh, and, and also because of that speed gain, uh, we're able to get a, a much higher margin to our side. So, Grant, the uh, the last five years have been a pretty impressive growth story. Uh, Straker's grown revenue from ten million in FY sixteen to thirty one million in uh, FY twenty one, and guiding for fifty million uh, in FY twenty two. Uh, and at the same time, the global market for language services is booming. Um, Expected to be sixty-seven billion uh, in twenty twenty-two. You know, supported by a lot of those tailwinds that you touched on earlier, the increased volume of content, the increased volume of cross-border trade, um, all of that. So, I guess the question is for a CEO and a founder looking at this massive opportunity set that um, that is there in the language translation service. How do you go about actually building a strategy and trying to capture more and more of this market share? Yeah, um, and that is a great question in terms of you know, positioning where we're at. And so, so our strategy is very much that this industry is going through disruption and that there's really four quadrants, if you looked at a typical Gartner-type chart, where you've got a lot of legacy players. There's 20,000 small translation companies around the world, say under sort of 50 million, but the average size is probably closer to 5 million in revenue. And these guys don't have technology. They've relied on a geographical close relationship to, to get their customers. And now customers want more technology and they want a global provider, um, not just one in, one language in each country. So that segment's really under pressure. 
I, I call it personally the dying zone. I think that they, they're really going to struggle to survive through this technology avalanche. And you've got big legacy golf players. So there's probably 40 companies that's sort of above 50 million in revenue or 100 million. Um, they've got the scale to deliver for a large corporate, but they don't have the technology. So for them to, to adapt, they're going to have to cannibalize their existing business models. Um, and we've got a big leap on those guys because we've thought about our technology from a long way out. And then you've got some technology players who are in, 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 a, in another quadrant. They've got technology, but they haven't quite got scale. And then you've got the scale and technology quadrant, which has not got many players, and we think we're moving into that quadrant now because um, we've got that, that scale of you know, 50 million of sort of revenue number but we've also got the technology, and and that played out in the in the recent sort of big win we had with IBM, where we got a global supply agreement with with IBM, and what that proves as part of that process was that companies will now pick innovation over legacy kind of scale players. So uh, we think that now it's about how quickly large organisations and large consumers of translations. Um, start to switch to innovation-type players, and, and, and we want to be, have our foot down with using our global scale in our team and all the countries out there um, dri- driving revenue. So, Grant, I guess the question is then for retail investors and everyone listening at home is how big can Straker actually be? Um, well, it's, it's, it's a huge market opportunity, and... Uh, we certainly want to be one of the the large players. The largest player in the industry is about a billion in revenue. Wow, okay. Um, right, so it's 50 billion plus market size, right, 50, 60 billion. It's still not much. So you, you could be a, a 100 million, 200, 300 million dollar revenue player and you're still not a, a big player in, in terms of uh, market, market share. Uh so I guess we've, we've got to take some steps on that and just see what plays out over the next year or two. It's, it's um, We're obviously – we've just raised some capital. We're very well positioned now to accelerate our next round of growth. Uh, so, so I, yeah, again, I think that, that that number or how big can we be, I would certainly like us to be in the top ten, I guess, if I looked at the industry, and that would mean that you're, you're getting your revenues – probably over 300 million eventually and you know and then really driving up so grant uh, there's a few there's a few points that you touched on that would uh, love to follow up there the IBM partnership the capital raise and competition um, so if we start with the IBM partnership I imagine that that must be pretty exciting uh, for you and the team you know a ASX listed New Zealand based company uh, striking a deal with one of the biggest uh, tech companies in the world well, I don't know if they're one of the biggest in the world these days, but a big technology player. Um, what, what's the details on that partnership? Um, and I guess how did you uh, position Striker to win that deal over, you know, all of your competitors? Yeah, sure. Look, so, I mean, I, I think they probably would be one of the, the biggest. Um, it's certainly one of the big players in AI, and I think that's quite important uh, around this deal. So, traditionally, IBM have had, you know, multiple suppliers around the world. So, you know, I don't know how many, 20 or whatever in different countries. Uh, they wanted to consolidate that. Uh, and and basically what we did was we acquired a company in Barcelona in Spain in 2018. Um, they had IBM as a customer and a regional relationship, so they were doing the Spanish for them. 
we were able to take that relationship and then get a relationship with the IBM head office in terms of the people that dealt with their translation services globally. Uh, we were able to show them our technology, how it uses AI to, to get efficiencies and um, streamline the process and how we could actually deliver a global uh, service to them. And we went through a, you know, a full RFP and, and we won that as a, as a sort of global service provider across the whole IBM group. So it's, it's a really significant deal. Uh, there's not many companies as you say, in sort of ASX-listed Australasia, for example, who can pull off a deal, a global supply agreement with one of these um, large tech players. So, you know, it's fantastic work. I think it showed that we had a an enterprise sales team that could deliver those sorts of outcomes. And um, and, and it's, it, it is a huge opportunity. We're having to scale. I think um, you know, we said at the time we had to hire about 40 people <laughs> to onboard uh, there's it's it's driving huge volumes through our platform, uh, yeah, and 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 we're working with IBM on on some, you know, AI related um, content uh, work that we're doing. We're we're doing lots of integration into their platform, so a really really exciting uh, opportunity for us. It's an interesting one that Spanish acquisition. You know, I've heard of uh, company acquisitions for their technology. I've heard of aqua hires where where you know companies get acquired for their talent. But this is the first time I think I've heard of a company being acquired for the relationships it has. Um, that's a that's an interesting strategy, but obviously one that's paid off. Yeah, and it's, they're not the only one that's done it. Um, and again, I think if you look at the industry, the reason is people have these really tight relationships with quality over many years with their translation provider. And they know that there's a better way to do it. They know that there's that they need more technology, but they they hold on to these small relationships because they they're scared that uh, you know there might be some sort of quality issues. And I think once you start to prove people that the technology actually delivers better quality outcomes, th- then people will break free from those um, relationships. But in the meantime, you, we've been out there acquiring a few companies for those types of global relationships. And yeah, it, it is absolutely a, a strategy. So Grant, you mentioned that you've just completed a capital raise of about $20 million. What are you planning to use these funds for? Yeah, so actually in total, it'll be about $25 million, I think. It should be an announcement today, I think, because of the retail oh, offer. nice. Lead, market-leading news. Equity mates breaking news. Love to see that. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it was well flagged that, that today was when we No, no, we'll of, take it. <laughs> of of, of the, the, the entitlement offer. So so we did a 20, 20 million institution placement, institutional placement, and $5 million as a, as a retail entitlement offer. Um, so we'll have $25 million. So, so there's a few things that we're doing. So one, we, 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 we took out some debt to buy a company in January of this year. So we'll pay about $8 million. We'll go back down to pay down that debt. Now, um, the reason that we took out debt at the time, we didn't think that the market had fully uh, appreciated the size of the IBM deal that we announced in November, December, and we thought that they would start to appreciate it more as we started to get into our results, which I think has started to happen. So rather than doing a capital raise at that time, we took on some um, fairly simple debt, bank-type debt, um, and we were able to use that uh, to uh, make the acquisition we wanted to make and um, and then do an equity raise now when the market had sort of appreciated some of the other news that we have. So that's going down. So, so that'll leave us, we had, we had about um, $7 million in the bank, so that leaves us sort of, you know, a net sort of $19 million or something that we have now got to deploy. So 
we, we, we still are on the acquisition trail. We, we see some great opportunities, especially post-COVID, to uh, accelerate our growth even further through some strategic acquisitions. And then we've got some uh, really significant uh, growth, organic growth strategies that we're implementing so that we'll invest into. So, yeah, I, I think at the moment that, that's the main reason. But I, I think you know having a strong balance sheet in a post-COVID world is a smart thing to do because there's going to be all sorts of opportunities um, and we're starting to see those start to arise um, and we want to be in a good position to take advantage of them. Not everybody's going to get through COVID as well. You know, some have survived through some of the subsidies. Some have, There's been certain projects that have got people into certain places and, and as they start to run out, we think that there, there will be some fantastic opportunities um, to, to really build some value. So Grant, it, it's all, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of positive, uh, I guess, uh, elements to this story so far. The the revenue growth, the big deals, um, raising money, acquisitions, like uh, it seems everything's going well. But when you, when you think about online translation services, you do think of some pretty big names, you know, Google Translate, Microsoft Translator, some of the biggest companies in the world are building translation software and, you know, uh, having incredible pricing power and incredible scale. How do you think about competing with some of those, I guess, big, scary tech companies at the at the top end of town? And that's a question, obviously, as you can imagine, we get asked a fair bit and always have uh, been asked. So, so, so one thing is that, you know, we were asked that in 2010, right? People were going, <laughs> surely by now, you know, Google will, will own everything by, you know, 20, 2015, you know, um, and, and obviously they, they didn't because – you still need humans in the mix. Humans, any AI-driven outcome needs curation from humans to keep it accurate. And if you just let a machine go off and do two or three iterations, it'll start to produce rubbish. So uh, so you've got to have the right platform that captures the human and the machine element. A lot of the big tech companies, they don't want to be involved in all this human part of it. They don't want to be involved in the services side of what's going on and the complexities around that, right? They just want to, a lot of the times, just do a consumer-based product or um, just a, a sort of base for a for a B2B solution. So for example, just, hey, look, here's some initial machine translation for your B2B solution, a bit like, hey, here's a cloud storage type thing. So, um, so we don't see them really as, as competing and we don't, come across them in that way at all in, in the market. So the question is, how do you, as, as machines start to play a bigger part in this industry, how do you get the, the right commercial outcomes? And so what we do in our platform is that what we do, which is very different to everybody else, is rather than doing pricing and, and paying vendors on a, on a content volume, which is the industry average, like this is how many pages we've got, this is how many words, uh, we can do it on the time it takes to actually get that completed. So if a human goes twice as fast, but they're paid the same hourly rate, so they're paid a fair hourly rate for their for their skill set, but they go twice as fast, that translation's taken half as half the time and cost half as much. So a very simple piece of logic that everybody thinks, well, why doesn't everybody do that? Because it's very difficult <laughs> to actually build that. And it's taken us ten years of continual iteration and building up massive data sets that actually improve the speed of those humans. So that's why I think, you know, that's, that's more important. How's, how's this going to play out in terms of uh, machines and humans together? So Grant, before we move to uh, discussion on people and culture, we will just take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Grant, one of the things that we often hear from uh, many of the fund managers we talk to is the difficulty of understanding uh, management, how they think about growing their company, and particularly around people and culture, but yet it's such a an integral part to making investment decisions as retail investors. So we always like to involve a discussion around that in these interviews. So let's start at the top. Do you have a leadership philosophy as CEO? I do. Um, and, and again, can I encapsulate that in a couple of words? Maybe not, but I, but I have a, a philosophy that to grow as a company, we need to have uh, a distributed model of business owners in each region, especially when you're as global as we are, who are responsible for making the daily decisions that they need to make whilst operating under a, um, a shared services model for uh, the parts of our business where we can get operating leverage. Um, so there's a, there's a great book um, called Copeland of all places. I don't know if you've ever heard of this book, but uh, it's always, everybody goes, what is Copeland about? Is it about Coca-Cola or is it about white line fever? I'm never sure, but it's actually about uh, Coke Coke Industries, which is K-O-C-H, and this guy, Bill Coke, who is one of the world's 10 richest men. And it is a fantastic book. I, I honestly, I think if you're, if you're a student of, of business, it's re- a really interesting book. And I'm not saying I agree with all of his political philosophies or anything else. But one thing they did when they grew was that they, you know, they made sure that every company that they acquired, every business unit they set up, somebody in there owned the P&L. Somebody uh, was responsible for you know, getting up every day and being in charge of the revenue and those decisions on the ground. And so that's why we have a structure of, of business units. But on top of that, what you've got to have is a core philosophy that we have across the group, which is we working on the same platform. So when we acquire a company, we want everybody in that company using our tools, using the same platform. And that that way, it doesn't matter if somebody is in Barcelona, if somebody is in Tokyo, if somebody's in Philadelphia or, or Auckland, wherever they are, they know what's going on with a customer's project and we can share resources. So that's a core kind of structural philosophy, I guess. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, um, Grant, you've mentioned a couple of times that uh, Straker is truly a global uh, business. And, you know, if you go on your website and you're looking at where you've got offices, it, it really is across the world. Um, and at the same time, you're also acquiring companies around the world. You know, you mentioned that Spanish company that you acquired in 2018, and there's been a few others along the way. Um, how do you build and maintain a, a, a culture as you expand globally and you, uh, you integrate these acquired companies into the, into the building? Yeah, look, and it's one of the issues with COVID, right? You, you, you get this cultural drift because you're not going into, into see people and um, you're not getting that interaction um, with, with the team. And part of it is around a COVID specific part of this, I think, and, you know, how you're maintaining it through COVID and then what would you do normally? I think you've got to use the tools that you can do. So I, I, what, what we have done is um, 
we used uh, we used Slack a lot so everybody could communicate. Obviously, we 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 have a lot of um, engagement with the team around certain days or, or whatever's going on. You know, it might be some Spanish day and everybody will wear sombreros around the world and, and talk to people. Um, yeah, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah, for me, it's it's always uh, communication is always the key to that cultural team, and I guess we're lucky in that we've got good team leads, that we've had a lot of engagement over the last few years. We've done lots of travelling. We tend to buy uh, companies and cities um, that are really good to go out in normally. Um, <laughs> good due diligence. <laughs> <laughs> so Barcelona, Madrid, you know, Tokyo. We did buy one in Utah where you don't go out quite so much, but there's great skiing. So, you know, it's all, it's all, it's all, it's all a trade-off. Um there's got to be some benefits to, to growing these companies. Um, yeah, so I think, yeah, it is interesting. And we have some fantastic people across, you know, I think the average age is, is maybe mid-30s, I think. If I look back at we've got some dashboards going on, sort of a uh, really diverse, um, you know, yeah, super diverse, certainly, um, you know, 50-50, male-female, all sorts of ethnicities and sort of, you know, um, population uh, – yeah, types of types of the, the population, everything else. So it's it's um, you know it's great to, to 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 have a team like that and to get everybody's viewpoints to understand you know what they see and work and what's important to them and, and and different people in different geographies sort of value different things and have different structures. In Europe, you've got a very socialist kind of. Uh, social structure that that supports people in the US, obviously, maybe not so much, and it's it's a different type of uh, way that you work, um, and somewhere in between in, in Australasia. So yeah, it's 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 really interesting. You, you- so the software industry is notorious for being difficult to retain talent, and we imagine that it would be even harder in a market like New Zealand, where there aren't as many engineers as say Sydney or Silicon Valley. So how do you approach this challenge as CEO? Yep, so one thing that we did in New Zealand uh, a few years ago, we set up an office in Gisborne down on the east coast of New Zealand. So one of the problems we've got, and I'm sure you've got it in Sydney, nobody in Auckland could actually afford to buy a house. No, well-paid, could not afford to buy a house. House prices here are just ludicrous. And so what we did is we looked around in the regions of New Zealand down in Gisborne, a beautiful surf beach, one of the fantastic surf beach lovely place to live uh, you know everybody can cycle to, to work and, and live so so we asked the team um, you know what we should do should we set up an office a bit further out of Auckland or you know change the working policy and they said look if we had an office in the regions that'd be great really low um, house prices at the time down in Gisborne so um, look we, we have about 20 people that moved down there that enabled a whole bunch of our developers with families and staff to move there and um, buy a house and that's, I guess, um, you know, been well received, and it, and, we're, and, and there's not, you know, there's not a lot of other tech companies down there, for example. So it's it's somewhere where uh, we've built a really good culture, and and it's an option for the team. And that was, you know, very deliberate in terms of trying to create opportunities for our staff to get get on the housing ladder, um, and and have a better sort of family social structure. So again, the other outcome is that they haven't had to go and just keep changing jobs just, just to pay a mortgage, for example. You know? So, you know, you can go and get more money, but all that's doing is paying some great bit more. You're not getting anything else out of it. They, they've, they've got that that balance, I would hope, and, and, and that's been successful. 
Um, we have an apprentice, not an apprenticeship program, but uh, taking on younger uh, or people who have come out of other industries and, and trying to get them trained up and then accelerating them quite quickly once we know that they've got in there. Uh, so so we have, um, yeah, been been reasonably good. New Zealand's coming under pressure now, I think, in terms of the lack of immigration where a lot of, you know, a lot of the resources would have, would have come in um, and we don't really have the, the the education system here that, in my view, is is put enough kids out with the right skills either. So, um yeah, so at the moment it's 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 not too bad. I've, I've I've heard a few other stories around about the place, but we're we're reasonably in reasonably good shape. Mm. Grant, I'm I'm getting uh, a I guess a picture of the organisation that you're building. You know, you're acquiring companies in cities that you want to go out in: Tokyo, Madrid, Barcelona. You've got a company uh, that can uh, get you to the ski fields in in Utah. You've moved an office down to the the coast in New Zealand. You're really building a, a very nice life uh, for as well as a very nice company. And, and that's you know, and that's one of the things I think they had the top fifty places to work in New Zealand, and we didn't make it top fifty tech companies. I don't know. Somebody just some some um, recruitment crowd just came up with a list of fifty, right? And I'm like, how are we not in there? <laughs> because you, know, you, you can go and literally work right on a bloody surf beach, or you could be, uh, you know, going around. So, you know, look, and and that's you know, and and, and that's all all part of it. I mean, uh, often when you're buying a company, you, you don't, you know, generally get uh, to pick too much <laughs> where it might be if it's the right value. And we've, but but we have been lucky in in some of the. Uh, uh, some of the locations that uh, that we've ended up with with companies in, in uh, 2019. You know, we had our, our Japanese guys were fantastic. I was up there on a sort of rugby tour with a couple of mates, and uh, you know, it, it does pay off sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> now, Grant, at the start of at the start of this, you uh, mentioned how uh, Marin, your wife, and and you co-founded the business in 1999. What are we talking? 22 years later, you guys continue running it today as CEO and COO, respectively, which is, you know, as close a you know, co-founder relationship as you can have. You know, Bryce and I are co-founders. We haven't quite put 22 years into it yet. So uh, I guess we want to get, get your advice at this point. Um, you know, how do you, how do you manage the relationship between co-founders when you've also got such a close personal relationship? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's, it's actually about having different skills. You know, Mirren's uh, a very talented woman. And I think, um, you know, she bought a lot of those when I bought all the development skills early on and maybe some of the sales skills, she was very much, you know, into that business side. She, she's got a, uh, you know, a degree in, in business and, and so she 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 drives um a lot of that and i do a lot of the business stuff so early on obviously we were both able to concentrate on different things but be very aligned and that certainly before we had kids we didn't start having kids till 2005 you know it was great fun because we could go around the world and and, and travel together and work together and and sort of have you know um really enjoy that sort of freedom for um the kids come along and uh, and lock you down a bit. Um, so yeah, so so we have gone through that, and 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 and, and it is hard. And sometimes it's it's very hard when you you're both sort of really work. Even now, we will both work late at nights, and and, and you've got to manage that with your family. And I think um, we've we've had a reasonable balance of of doing that. Um, my main thing would be make sure that you both have complementary skills. 
they'd end up with a better outcome if you're both exactly the same uh, it's probably much harder well grant it's been a, a pleasure talking to you today um you know we really enjoy unpacking companies that we haven't come across before and that are providing you know uh, great value to to society out there so thank you for your time we do finish with uh three final questions that we ask all of our ceos so that is around future plans. Um, what does the next 12 months hold for Straker and what is the product pipeline? Yeah, so if you look at sort of what we said around our uh, full-year results, you know, we're obviously giving guidance, uh, $50 million and, and getting IBM onboarded and, uh, you know, working through that process, quite significant. We're also integrating Lingotech, which is a SaaS-based company that we acquired in, in January, so they have a strong underlying SaaS model, and we're looking to grow uh, some of that SaaS revenue. Again, we are not going to be a 100% SaaS company, but we we see it as a, as a great way to have a sort of solid base in the business. Um, focusing on that, um, hopefully COVID, it's already starting to be a little bit less of an issue in other parts of the world, I think down here at the moment. It's, it's obviously causing a bit of a few issues, but, uh, you know, the U.S. seems to be opening up so we can start to go to conferences and we can start to, to drive marketing campaigns again, in-person marketing campaigns, so in sales activity in Europe. So, so that's that's going to be, I think, our, our big drivers over the next 12 months. And Grant, if you if you think about uh, you know the risks to your business, um, you know you're a, you're a global business, you're a growing business, um, but but there's always things c- that can make it come unstuck. Um, so looking at your business now, what would be uh, the biggest risk at the moment? Yeah, I, I guess you've just got to put risks into into different buckets. There's there's all sorts of sort of technology risks going around. I think for a lot of businesses, and I think we're, we're mitigating a lot of those. So, so I'm not so worried. I think in terms of making sure we have all the right resources, I think resourcing is going to be an issue over the next 12 months for a lot of companies. So especially growth focused companies that, that, you know, onboarding staff fast enough to keep up with the growth, I think is, 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 is an area. Um, they're probably the two that I would think about at the moment as being the sort of major risk. And then to close out, Grant, if you were to think about where Straker will be in the next 10 years, what does success look like for you? Yeah, so I, mean, I think I said earlier, you know, it'd be great to be in the top 10 and to, to really be right up there. For us, what I've always tried to, to do and, 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 and one of the things that's guided us through, I think when you talked about Marin and I earlier, is we always wanted to build a big technology-driven company out of Australasia. Out of New Zealand, out of Australia, just we've always wanted to do that because we think that that's what New Zealand and Australia need. We need tech companies that are punching out around the world, not just New Zealand and Australia, just consumers of other big tech products out there. Um, so I would hope that we've got uh, a global leader in this sort of language communication space Um that's based down here, and and that's part of the well, we're a listed company as well. We we want to have that framework, right? That, that that's what you know. Um, and if we're doing that, and we're employing people in the region, and and we're selling that around the world, I think that's you know, that's what we want our companies to be doing. And and that's the reason ultimately that that yes, you, you know, you want to start a company. If you just want to start a company just to just to make money, um, you, you'd probably import because <laughs> it'd be yeah. a lot easier, and you could sell it right, but. It's much harder to export and it's much harder to export te- technology. But once you get there, it's, it's way more valuable to society, I think. 
Well, Grant, as I said, it's been a pleasure and we thank you for coming on Equity Mates and, and sharing the journey of Straker with us. Um, as I said, we're always interested in new companies. There's plenty on the ASX to work through and, and we appreciate you sharing your, your thoughts on leadership and culture as well as we know that that's an important part of uh, understanding a company as a retail investor. So um, as I said, absolute pleasure and, and thank you very much. My pleasure to be here, guys, and uh, thanks for having me on. Equitymates Investing Podcast is a product of Equitymates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. 